0: I was a young teenager, so this was a few years ago. I was a young teenager, and my parents were at work, and like all young teenagers, I was hungry, so I decided to make a coffee cake. I know, that sounds pretty exotic for a young teenager to make but we were coffee cake people. We would have coffee cake on Saturday mornings, and we were Bisquick people. I know some of you think crusties is where you should go, but we were Bisquick people. And thankfully Bisquick had the recipe right on the back of the box. So I pulled it out of the pantry, got all the ingredients together, and I went to work. First, that magic Bisquick itself. Everything that you need to bake a coffee cake. Then I added in the salt and the egg and the milk and I mixed it all together and I poured it into this glass, glass dish. I topped it off with that brown sugar and butter and cinnamon. I fasted today, so I'm really hungry right now. Put it in the oven and In 18 to 22 minutes, it was golden brown, bubbling over with caramel goodness. I took it out of the oven, I cut a nice big slab, I slathered it with butter. Armed with an ice-cold glass of milk, I bit into my perfect coffee cake and nearly threw up. It was terrible. It looked amazing. It smelled amazing. But something was wrong. When my mom got home from work later that day, I told her about my culinary disaster. She took a bite and she started laughing. Well, first she had to spit out the coffee cake and then she started laughing. I was missing an ingredient. I was missing the sugar. In fact, instead of the two tablespoons of sugar that the recipe called for, I had put in two tablespoons of salt. It was obvious to her that I was missing an ingredient. Friends, is it obvious that we're missing some ingredients in the world today. Something is wrong. Something is wrong with me. Something is wrong with you. Something is wrong with our culture. Something is wrong in our city. Something is wrong in our world. Tonight, as we conclude this day that we have set aside for prayer and fasting I want us to think about two missing ingredients. Sin and forgiveness. Sin and forgiveness. It was 50 years ago in 1973 that the author Carl Menninger wrote the book with the wonderful title, Whatever Happened to Sin? I can't imagine a better title for our age. A gunman opens fire in an elementary school or a college campus or a mall or a grocery store or any of the hundreds of places that it happens day in and day out in our culture. A gunman opens fire and our cultural commentators stutter. They stammer. They don't know how to describe the evil that we're all witnessing. Nation is set against nation. On a weekly basis, we pray against genocide in Africa. Our news feeds have been filled with stories of environmental catastrophe unfolding in Ohio. Our friends and neighbors complain about systemic injustice. What's going on in the world? What's wrong with the world? The missing ingredient is sin. But to say that risks our being misunderstood or being outright dismissed, maybe even persecuted by our unbelieving friends and neighbors. We can no longer take granted in our society that our ideas and practices and morals are intelligible to contemporary people. In fact, our normal speech about sin probably sounds immoral to most unbelievers who made you a judge they might ask. What, do you think you're perfect? They would rightfully accuse us. Why can't you accept people the way that they are? Why would you use your religion to coerce me into a set of behaviors that you approve of? If you're not hearing that, you're not talking to you're not hearing that, your circle is too small. But how do we answer such complaints? How do we help people taste and see that something is terribly, terribly wrong? One way is to turn to Psalm 51 and to hear David diagnose The problem that is common to all of us. Sin. I'm glad that Psalm 51 doesn't include any description of David's actual sin. Have you ever noticed that? Psalm 51 doesn't talk about the fact that he used his royal power to coerce Bathsheba, the wife of another man, To have sex with him. Rape by any other name. David doesn't call that out specifically in Psalm 51. Sending Uriah, who interestingly was one of David's mighty men. Did you know that? That group of men who had been with David before he became king who were with him in the wilderness, who had even risked their lives to fetch David water. David, or Uriah, one of David's mighty men. That's who David sent to the Ammonite front line. Not some unknown person, but one in whom he had trusted his life. That's who David murdered to hide Bathsheba's pregnancy. But again, there's no mention of Uriah in Psalm 51. It's left, if you have your Bibles, you notice that little title at the top of Psalm 51 that was added by a later editor. It was left to someone else to flesh out the story, to give explanation to Psalm 51. Folks, I don't think that this is an oversight of David's. I don't think that he forgot what he was confessing. Instead, David laments sin as a condition that is common to all of us. Verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity. From birth, my mother conceived me, and so are you, and so was I. His whole being is sinful. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop. That kind of cleansing, that's what would have been done to someone who is leprous, whose whole being was separated, as Pastor Danny reminded us on Sunday, from the community of Israel. In verse 10, his heart needs a deep cleanse because his affections as a whole, the direction of his life, it's it's going in the wrong way. And his spirit, he goes on in verse 10. His spirit, which as God's king, should be in communion with his creator. His spirit has gone bad. It needs renewal and restoration. David understands what many of us still struggle to comprehend, what our friends and neighbors may have never even grappled with. David understands that before we are sinners by our actions, we are sinful in our person. That's the missing ingredient that David provides in Psalm 51. That's the missing ingredient in our national conversations about evil. Oh, but friends, we have got to be careful here. We have got to be careful because I think that you and I might have a tendency to stand back from our culture to stand apart from our society, to stand against our unbelieving friends and family as if they are the sinners who need to confess. As if we have been put in a position to identify their sins for them. No, friends. We can't simply be the church lady. We we can't get dressed up and be prim and proper like that Dana Carvey character from Saturday Night Live. We can't wag our fingers at the world around us. And honestly, the world doesn't need it from us. They may not use the language of sin but, folks, what is cancel culture but the Inquisition by another name? No, the unique calling of the church, the unique words of the church. We are called to provide another missing ingredient forgiveness. Have you ever noticed the boldness of David's prayer of lament? Compare the words of Psalm 51 to the last time you felt bad about yourself, to the last time someone caught you doing something wrong, to the last time you were brought to the end of ourselves. Look at the demands that he makes on God. Have mercy on me, verse 1. Wash me, cleanse me, verse 2. Purge me, wash me, verse 7. Hide not your face. Blot out my transgressions, verse 9. Create, renew, verse 10. Deliver me, verse 14. What gives him such confidence To talk to God that way? What gives him such boldness to pray that way? David knows that despite the damage his sin has done, and make no mistake, there is damage to Bathsheba. There is damage to his own family that will be felt for generations There is damage to his kingdom. Despite the damage that his sin has done, he knows that ultimately, verse 4, his transgression is against God. But with equal clarity, he also knows that God alone is the one who can save him. Verse 1, he is the God of steadfast love. If you like to underline in your Bibles, friends, that's a great phrase to underline. Steadfast love. What does that mean? It means the covenant faithfulness that God's people have to rely on. When they've sinned and when they've broken God's covenant again and again and again, they can't rely on their good intentions. They can't rely on, on their resolutions to turn over a new leaf. They have to rely on God's covenant. I, this is the language that Paul picks up on in Second Corinthians chapter I'm sorry, in Second Timothy, when he says that God remains faithful even when we are faithless. God is the God of steadfast love. Verse 14, he is the God of David's salvation. God is the one who had to come to Israel's rescue again and again and again. And now David stands apart and he knows that God must come to his rescue too. So instead of pride and arrogance, instead of the imposition of his will by his royal power, David acknowledges his true need of God's saving work. But it's a risk. It's a risk. Because forgiveness isn't a necessary correlation to sin. Forgiveness isn't a necessary corollary to sin. Do you hear what I'm saying? There can be sin without forgiveness. In fact, there are plenty of people in the world today, maybe even some of you sitting in the room tonight who are very happy to not forgive the sins that have been committed against you. And God, he would have been perfectly just to leave us in our sins. He didn't have to forgive us. No, but David knew that God had freely chosen to make forgiveness part of his work in the world. You see like every other little boy in Israel David had been circumcised when he was 8 years old, 8 days old. God had carved into his body the promise to be his God. It was a promise that was first given to Abraham and the sign was given to Abraham to help Abraham remember that promise. It was a promise that God would put his own life on the line. That God would suffer death and destruction so that his people could be saved. David was reminded every day of that covenant promise. You and I are also reminded that God is faithful to forgive, that God is so dedicated to forgiveness that one day the blood of God would drip down a cross on a hill outside the city gates of Jerusalem. Unlike David, we're not reminded by a knife that cuts away our flesh. We are reminded by the sign of baptism. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6 that our sinful selves are buried by baptism into the death of Christ. And just as Christ is raised in newness of life, Paul goes on to tell us that we too, though we are marked in baptism by death, we must consider ourselves dead to sin. and and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness comes at a steep cost, but God doesn't hold tightly to it. God doesn't just dribble it out whenever he's forced to. No, God is a big spender when it comes to grace. He's a profligate God who wastes forgiveness on those who are least deserving, on those who are unlikely to ever break even, on those most likely to continue to fail, you should know because you're the recipient of that grace, and so am I. And friends, that means the forgiveness that we have received should be the word of grace to the world in which we live. Verse 13. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Friends, here's my prayer for you. Over the course of your life, People will acknowledge sometimes. Sometimes they will acknowledge, and often it's with kind of a side look to see if you're safe. But over the course of your life, people will sometimes acknowledge their sin. They they may not use that language. Maybe they're too far removed from the church to understand that language, but they know it. Because Paul says that we're all born with an innate knowledge of God and the law of God. And so sometime they're going to come up next to you and they're going to acknowledge something that they have done. A regret that they have. A sorrow they carry with them. A shame too deep for words. They'll offer up their lives like my coffee cake. And they'll say, something is wrong. Give them the missing ingredients. Take them to Psalm 51 so that they can find themselves caught up in David's confession of sin. But don't stand apart from them. You, too, bend the knee. And join them in your own confession of sin. And then together, look with faith to Jesus. The God of your salvation, who has tasted that salty bitterness of death, so that we might know the sweetness of life. Let's pray. Father, many of us have spent this day coming back and forth to a hard acknowledgement of ourselves. Instead of being interrupted by lunch or snacks, we've used the time to bend the knee. And even though so much of the time was spent with family and work and other responsibilities, we have still had to make an honest appraisal of our own lives. Father, may we do it with the knowledge of both sin and forgiveness that David knew so that together with him And with those in our lives, we can be honest with you about our need and filled with joy and hope and confidence in the Savior who has rescued us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.